We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. Welcome to the All That To Say podcast. My name is Jim Lyon, your host. You're here for a great conversation. You're at the intersection, a place where there's real life, culture, faith, ideas that make us all better and hopefully will make this world better. We're so glad you've joined us. If you ever want to know more about what goes on behind the curtain at All That To Say, just send us an email. You can send it to allthattosay at chog, C-H-O-G dot org. Today... Our guest, Ted Green, a documentary filmmaker, someone who has earned 21 regional Emmys for his great and crafted work. He's somebody who has had all kinds of recognition across the public broadcasting system in this country, and he's also been someone who spent much of his life as a journalist. He knows about ideas, he knows about storytelling, and he has discovered some amazing stories. We want to talk about those today. Ted, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Jim. I'm, uh, I'm happy to be here. Well, we are so glad you've joined us because you have just released a new documentary about one of the great athletic stars of the 20th century, a baseball player of enormous renown and also great character. His name is Carl Erskine. But before we talk about that latest documentary, let's just find out some more about Ted. All right, Ted. You grew up in Wisconsin, is that right? That's correct. In Madison, Wisconsin. Madison, Wisconsin. I moved there when I was two years old. And that felt like home. Oh, that is definitely definitely home. I was a university brat. My father was a professor at UW-Madison, and my mom was a librarian there. Well, so lots of roots there. Lots of roots there. And you find yourself going into journalism. I, I did. I mean, um, was that, was that a, a lifetime thing you grew up thinking, someday I'm going to write for the paper, or what? Actually, I wanted to be William Faulkner. That was my whole <laughs> okay. plan, uh, as soon as I can come up with a plan. And then, uh, of course, turns out there's only one William Faulkner, so that one didn't work out so well. So I thought, well... I like sports. I like to write. I'll end up being, you know, going to sports writing in newspapers. So, so that's what I did. That's what I did for my first 20 years and, and moved all around the country and eventually wound up in Indianapolis. And uh, you told me uh, earlier as we were getting acquainted that uh, you spent some time in Miami working at the Miami Herald. That's correct. Uh, my wife and I were in Miami for five years, 1996 through 2001. Uh, and then we were finally blessed um, to, ha- to get pregnant with twins. And we kind of looked around our neighborhood uh, in Miami, and we thought, you know, there isn't another child within two miles of where we live, and we're both Midwesterners at heart. So we started poking around the Midwest, and my wife got a job at the Indianapolis Star, and so lo and behold, I was a, a stay-at-home dad of twin babies for three years. Whoa, and then got back to the press. Right, then after the girls went to preschool, um, that gave me some time to go back to work, and I worked at the sports department at the Indianapolis Star from 2004 until through 2010. And these are great newspapers, the Miami Herald and the Indianapolis Star. These are kind of anchoring voices in their communities and also have larger audiences, uh, storylines that go around the world. You focused on sports generally, right? And lived with that deadline, that byline thing. 
Uh, yeah, 20 years. I'm not sure if living is the right way to put it, but uh, dying every night a little bit. But no, uh, yeah, 20 years of deadline work in sports. What I discovered after a while was it wasn't the, the news that really got me, or even sort of the, the the feature stories where we're lionizing, you know, a great middle linebacker somewhere. It was the in-depth personal stories um, that we could let breathe a little bit. And I think that I should have probably known by that that eventually I'd want to find a, a way to tell you know longer stories, longer form storytelling. But I can't say that that was the plan all along. It just, <laughs> an event happened and I just kind of fell into it. Well, I mean, that's the way life goes. Often the best parts of life are the things we kind of fall into Correct. or we evolve into. And, and as you were covering sports and also living with the clock, I mean, I... I never worked except in my high school newspaper, but even then I remember, you know, the pressure of trying to deliver before the production deadline and so on. I had a very good friend who was in charge of production at the Seattle Times and mm -hmm. the constant pressure of delivery and and the truncating, you know, you're kind of truncating stories and things because that's just the nature of the business. And I'm hearing you say you begun you began to be drawn into the larger narrative. I did. And in fact, that's how I got into filmmaking. Uh, it, what happened was in 2009, John Wooden, of course, with deep Indiana roots, turned 99 years old. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know what? We should be ready for when he turns 100 or in the sad event he doesn't you know, get there. We should be ready that day. And normally that means, you know, you write a long story, you put it in a can and, you know, a hundred inch story, maybe three photos. And I thought, well, you know, that's all we ever do. We, how, why don't we try something different? I said, how hard? Could a five-minute video be? He said, "I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get some maudlin music. I'll put a few old photos together. I'll record the narration in the boiler room, which I did. And lo and behold, five minutes became thirty minutes because I got so excited about it. Mm -hmm. I loved interviewing people on camera, where you could see their eyes and see their emotions. And you know, just the story itself. Everybody knows about John Wooden with the UCLA Bruins, but his Indiana story, thirty-three years or whatever it was, was was absolutely." remarkable and largely untold. So that's why I did that. Um, that led to me doing another piece with the Indianapolis Star and Hoosier Military Veterans. And that, I love that too. And then I decided at age 43, it was time to take a crazy, crazy leap and become a rookie filmmaker. Well, I mean, it's journalism telling the story, you're interviewing witnesses, so to speak. But the idea of blending it together in a longer form with video uh, I can see how it could grab you. Oh, you know, that it, it, it completely grabbed me. I mean, right away, I, it just struck me, wow, this, is, this just opens up all my horizons. I, I love using I hated the fact that we'd write a long story and you could fit three photos with it. Or even maybe nowadays you can do a photo gallery. But that's not, you know, that, it, it seemed to me that this offered a third dimension. Um, and, you know, it took a while. I've been growing with every film because I really did start from scratch. But to be truthful, I still consider myself a journalist and what I do as journalism. I mean, mm -hmm. filmmaking is kind of a, a neat little title, but um, I think that my pieces are different than a lot of other, you know, documentaries that you see today, which are, which are great, but mine are very much journalism-based. Well, and it seems to me in your, in your portfolio... You have gravitated towards stories that inspire. I mean, you could do a documentary about a serial murderer, uh, which can be gripping. And there's a lot of reality television, for instance, that kind of allows people to experience a full palette of, 
of drama in real life. But what you're doing uh, tells a story legitimately. It's not polished beyond reality. It's it's the true story. It's the real deal, not fake. But it still leaves the viewer. It leaves the audience hopeful. That's my impression of the stories you tell. Is that fair? I think it's fair, and I'm, I'm very, very grateful um, because that, that is sort of my... I didn't start with a mission statement. I sort of evolved into a mission yeah. statement, which is I want to celebrate the triumph of the human spirit. Now, even when I was doing films on basketball players like Roger Brown, their very first Indiana Pacer, and then Slick Leonard, of course, his coach, and, and also a wonderful player in his own right. Yeah, the basketball was all fun, but when I'd sit back at the end and as I'm crafting the story, I didn't focus it around that. And then after that, I did branch out um, beyond sports. I did the story of Crispus Attucks High School, followed by the story of Eva Kaur, the Holocaust survivor, and now, of course, with Carl Erskine. And, and I'd say especially with those three, my goal, my goal for the walk away, people walk out of that film amazed by what, you know, in, in the case of Eva and Carl, what individuals were, how were they were able to move so social mountains, you know, one act at a time at a time. And then Crispus Attucks, just the whole, the whole school, you know, as, as such a beacon of hope for the, you know, the African-American community. Um, but I want, so people, I want people to be amazed by all that, but also think, God, you know what? I think maybe I can, I can be a better person myself. I can do some of the things myself. Because I think that, especially I would say with Carl, his, his heroism is the best kind of heroism. And there's a lot of people you call heroes around this and the other thing. But Carl's heroism, if you look at it, is an attainable heroism. It's something that we all can do. We don't need to be able to dunk a basketball. Yes, Carl could pitch a ball 95 miles an hour. But his greatest impact by far came off the field through simple acts of kindness. I mean, it, 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 it seems almost trite. It seems too simple, but it's not. And he's 95-year-old living proof of that. And man, I was just, I was drawn to that guy. And, and again, um, we now have an education, not just a film, we have an education program where we try to bottle, we're trying to bottle Carl and Betty and Jimmy's inspiration and their values so that long after they're you know, no longer with us, students around Indiana and hopefully beyond will be learning from that, will be learning from one of their own, very relatable lesson plans. Um, well, let, let's talk about Carl Erskine. Sure, let's do it. Because this is the let's subject of your, of your latest project, which is uh, already developing enormous buzz. I mean, you have 70,000 uh, orders for the teaching material that goes along with this documentary. That's phenomenal, and it's not actually gone public yet. That's and so there's there's something here. But let's talk about the Carl Erskine that some people who are baseball experts will certainly know already, but some people may have moved past the age when Carl was a star, because he's from the 1950s. I'm old enough to remember the 1950s, but not everyone listening might. Tell us about Carl Erskine. Now, he's an Indiana boy who becomes a superstar. Absolutely, and he does so on the grandest stage in sports at the time. People, it's hard for people today to understand that. We have all these different sports. We have 24-7 you know, uh, channeling and, and all that. Well, Carl went from you know Anderson, Indiana, born in 1926, 
1948, he's only 22 years old. And where is he? He's in Ebbets Field. And he's looking over his teammates are Jackie Robinson, Gil Hodges, Pee Wee Reese, uh, Carl Farillo, on and on, Roy Campanella, Duke Snyders. I mean, all those guys, but Farillo are Hall of Famers. And across town, who do you have? The New York Yankees with Mickey Mantle and all that, Yogi Berra and that crew. And also across town, you have Willie Mays and the, and the New York Giants. The three best teams you know, in this fulcrum of sports, and football wasn't what it was, it wasn't what it is now. Basketball, I mean, baseball was It was the, the center sport. of everything. It was the center. And there's Carl Erskine, and he's not just merely okay. During the Dodgers' heyday in the early 50s, he was their best pitcher. I mean, two no-hitters, World Series strikeout record. Um, and also just what he saw in his 12-year career. If you had to drop a 12-year career down anywhere on the whole timeline of the sport, I would argue you wouldn't find a more colorful or transformative one than when Carl played. He saw uh, it go from radio to TV, from trains to planes, from East Coast to West, and of course, biggest of all, from all white to integrated with Carl's teammate and very dear friend, Jackie Robinson, and Carl played. He was there. He was a champion of that great champion, arguably the biggest champion on the Dodgers, and that's in Jackie Robinson's words himself. This is our guy, as he calls himself, the skinny kid from Anderson, Indiana. Well, you just did a great job of contextualizing, I think, the amazing ascent of Carl Erskine, because those 12 years, I'm thinking as you're describing that epic of American history, this is when Lucy and Desi make television a household event. This is when Dwight Eisenhower is in the presidency, and there is this kind of idealized view of 1950s America, even though it had many, many dark edges. This is a time when the Cold War was really getting frozen. This is a world that is in the books and it's the time, as you said, when baseball was the center of American entertainment. And Carl was at the center of that center in New York City. The Dodgers then, Brooklyn Dodgers, before they went to LA, and they're playing in the World Series. This is a star team. What, five World Series did Carl play in? He played in five World Series. And won a winning. They won their first and only for the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1955. And he's the pitcher. Uh, he is the star pitcher, especially, I would say, 1951, 52, 53, 54, right around there. I mean, you know, at one point he was, without question, the best pitcher in the National League. He went 20 and 6. He went 15 and 2 down the stretch. You know, that was the same year he struck out 14 Yankees in the World Series, including <laughs> Mickey Mantle four times. You know, and, and Carl's not a, a big guy. You know, Carl, yeah. they, that was those the original doubts about him was this guy, he's so small. Can he really he's, deliver? <laughs> yeah, he's 5 foot 10. He's, he's 160 pounds, you know, soaking wet. Um, but he had a deceptively fast fastball and a curve that, as Vin Scully put it, you, you could see it in a snowstorm. And and he was, you know, he was just that guy. Um, and, and he was there for the Dodgers. Now they lost to the Yankees every year, you know, and that was <laughs> that was heartbreak. But in a way, it made it made the I think the Brooklyn Dodger fans could will go down as probably the greatest most. Uh, faithful set of fans ever. They loved their team, even after this defeat to the Yankees, defeat to the Yankees, defeat to the... So when they finally won in 1955, it was just euphoria. Pandemonium. It was pandemonium. And, and he pitched the first no-hitter on television. Is that right? He did. Actually, it was on national television. It was in 1956. At this point, a lot of people were thinking he was washed up. A lot of people thought Jackie Robinson was washed up. Roy Campanella was washed up. In fact, the day before he was supposed to pitch, Carl got a cortisone shot, which he really didn't want. But his arm, 
He hurt his arm in his very first start in 1948. So by 1956, it's hard for him to pitch more than once a week. But what happens? Uh, they go out there and they no-hit Willie Mays and the Giants uh, in 1956 on the first uh, nationally televised no-hitter. Wow. I mean, again, for someone who is just familiar with this present age of sports, it's hard to measure the impact and the kind of towering presence these teams and these stars occupied in the national consciousness at the time. I, I mean, I just heard yesterday that a Mickey Mantle baseball card from 1952 is now the most expensive sports memorabilia in history. Someone purchased it for over $12 million. Well, man, and when I saw that news, I thought, you know, Carl struck that guy out four times in one game. <laughs> Where's Carl's card? <laughs> but the idea is that this, this is where Carl's in the center of this scrum, and yet he's a man of exceptional character. Now, Mickey Mantle was a phenomenal performer. There's no doubt about that. But his own personal journey through this world had many more twists and turns. Carl is this kind of leave-it-to-beaver, idealized American dream, only in real flesh. Without question, that's what sets him apart. I mean, the baseball is phenomenal. It's cool. I hope it's a draw for people to get into it. Oh, I want to see that because then they can learn what really made Carl magical. But you know, I will say this, um, not to take issue with it, you're right. He is this sort of leave it to beaver existence. But what Carl does is service behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And you see that in so many different parts of his life. I mean, you know, his best friend growing up in Anderson was Johnny Wilson. Johnny Wilson was a young African-American boy. This is, they met in 1936. You know, racism was terrible, not just in Anderson, all over Indiana and of course beyond. It was especially bad in Indiana. And so with, with you know, Carl's shooting hoops one day in, a, in an alley, you know, on a, on a goal that his dad had, uh, had uh, found in a dump. Um, and uh, all of a sudden Johnny Wilson walks up and with every force in society pushing Carl to either ignore this kid at best or probably do something worse, he hands out, holds out the ball and says, hey, do you want to play? It's a simple thing like that. Um, Jackie Robinson, you know, when early on in Carl's career with the Dodgers. Another simple act. He's, you know, one day he comes out of the, the clubhouse to the sort of a fenced-off area outside Ebbets Field where the players' wives and families would wait for the players. But all the fans could see because mm -hmm. there was a fence sure, around. they're so, crowding yes. around. Right, so, so Carl goes out and what does he see? He sees a, a young woman and a little child standing all by themselves, nobody talking to them. So what does he do? He walks up, you know, speaks, starts an engaging conversation with the woman, uh, roughs up the boy's hair. He just does what he does. Well, the next day, Jackie Robinson approaches him and says, Carl, I wanna, I wanna thank you for yesterday. And Carl's like, what are you talking about, man? I didn't, I didn't pitch yesterday. He said, no, you went out of your way in front of all these people to make Rachel Robinson, my wife, and little Jackie Jr. feel welcome. You know, I really want to thank you for that. And Carl was just struck dumb. He said, Jackie, don't thank me for that. That came as natural to me <laughs> as breathing. This is who Carl was. And there are a lot of examples like that, especially, you know, with Jackie and then with Carl's and Betty's son, Jimmy, who I'm sure we'll get to in a little yes, bit here. Yeah. Carl lived for others in subtle ways, um, but those subtle ways add up. Well, Man, let's, do they add up. let's grab on to the Jackie Robinson piece of the story because the Brooklyn Dodgers are famous for many things, but one outstanding feature that has actually cast a long impact on our country has been the role of Jackie Robinson, who breaks down a barrier 
in professional athletics in this country. And he is an African-American player in a white world. They're touring about, and there's challenges with where he stays and where he eats. The team is separated out. Here he's a star, but because of the color of his skin in the age in which he lived, he was set to the side. And Carl is a part of this Dodgers family who seems to be able to just kind of not even to see the difference, or he, he somehow embraces Jackie, which today we would say, oh, of course. But in the time, it was not an of course. What, now, you referred to his childhood with Johnny Wilson, who was a, a local hometown basketball star in high school, not on the national stage, but an African-American that became his best friend. How, how does that all play together? It's Carl's journey through this small town, but even in this small town, it wasn't all, you know, it was racially divided, and yet Carl didn't see it somehow. He, he You know, I think it, like with most things, I think it came from his parents. They instilled that in him. And he, his faith life began really, really early. Um, you know, do you say, do I think that when he handed out the ball, to Johnny Wilson or when he went out of his way to help Jackie Robinson. And I do want to get back to Jackie Robinson because that's phenomenal. Was was he, did some piece of scripture come to mind or a Bible verse? Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't think so. It, it came naturally. But everything he did was infused by his faith. It was framed uh, and formed by it. Without question. He just had this, uh, this, this sense of helping the downtrodden. I mean, it was it was in his core, and like you said, and that's what he told Jackie when Jackie tried to say, tried to thank him for that. You know, Jackie followed up by saying, "Carl, you know, I see life, I see life divided. You seem to see life connected." And Carl said, "Well, let me explain about Johnny Wilson." Mm-hmm. So Johnny Wilson, he said, prepared him for Jackie Robinson, and to give a sense, like you said, yes, did the Dodgers bond bond around Jackie? Yes, maybe not as much as been reported on before. Um, you know, Pee Wee Reese is famous, and justly so, for throwing his arm around him in a big moment as sort of a sign of racial solidarity. But it should say something that the year Jackie passed, he did an interview um, that year, and he said very emphatically that no Dodger, none, understood more about what was going on racially than Carl Erskine did. You know, and I spoke in the film with um, a gentleman named Richard Lapchick, who is known as sort of the racial conscience of sport. He goes way, way back. And he said, you know, and you made this point, for for Carl to do what he did in the 50s in that environment, I mean, he said it's still tough to do that today. But he said, you ask any civil rights, um, you know, staunch civil rights person among African Americans, they will say, the biggest thing we need, the biggest thing we need are white allies. And this guy, Richard Labshek, said, Carl Erskine, with what he did with Jackie Robinson, was one of the very first he white was allies. an original white ally, and at some risk. Because uh, Anderson, Indiana, Carl's hometown in central Indiana, was really a hotbed of the Ku Klux Klan. And I mean, it, it wasn't just a neutral playing field or even a divided town. It was a place where there was hostility between different racial groups. And the Klan... Uh, has a history of marching around this uh, part of Indiana, and yet Carl was not intimidated and and not afraid and not conscious of the cost. He just did it because it's who he was. Again, I think we need to underscore that point. So let's go there. 
the I learned a lot about this in my my film about Crispus Attucks High School. The Klan, it's the the second act of the Klan, if you will. They sort of had three. The first was during Reconstruction in the in the eighteen hundreds. The second act came after World War One. Yes, nineteen twenties, especially nineteen twenties, and it was really, honestly, the national base was right here in Indiana. It was around the Midwest, and of course, it was still popular in the South. But Indiana is where you had D.C. Stevenson, the Grand Dragon, and you had—I mean, all of these. This is where this is where this, I hate to say it, but the hatred was sort of emanating from. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just, you know, people say Martinsville. Well, yeah, there was stuff in Martinsville and Elwood and other places, but it was very active in Indianapolis and it was very active in Anderson. Somebody early on in this project told me, oh yeah, we didn't have any of that in Anderson. And I kind of <laughs> rolled my eyes. I went right, I knew right where to go. And so and it's in the film. There's a picture of the Klan marching right down the middle of Anderson, you know, right mm -hmm. down Main Street there. Mm -hmm. And this, again, you have to understand, in this context, I mean, you know, you, you have to know a bunch of Carl's people he hangs out with in high school, they wouldn't hand the ball to Johnny Wilson. Mm -hmm. Well, Carl does. And it wasn't just a one-time thing. I mean, 80 years later, these two guys are still best friends. They were, I love it. They would speak in schools. You know, there they are, an 80-year-old white guy and an 80-year-old black guy talking to a bunch of eight-year-olds, showing them away. You know, there's a guy named Michael Tackett who's in the film. He's from Anderson, genius. He, he went on to be an author and a New York Times reporter. And he said the beauty about Carl and Johnny in their old age, they they weren't there to scold you. They weren't there to preach at you. They weren't there to shame you. They were there to show you. That's what Carl has always done. He he lights a path for others to follow. You know, it is it's it's subtle, but it's all the more powerful for that subtlety. I think, and that's what we're trying to capture here. And again, it's just it's, this is a, the film is a sort of a sequence of stories that show you know the inner beauty of Carl and his wife Betty. You know, and and then you know what happened here in Anderson, right here, and and this kind of heart for humanity. I mean, I think that's part of it, framed by his faith. His family very active in their local church, and he grew up in this uh, knowledge and understanding of of the Christian gospel that that kind of framed him, caused him to see people as peers, not as classes, and. And that caused him to connect to people that sometimes would bridge social divides that other people might stumble on. And that inclusivity, that respect, that appreciation for fellow human beings. And I would, if I could speak for Carl, created in the image of God. That's probably how he saw it and still sees it. Now is going to be put to the test again as he retires from Major League Ball in 1959 and leaves the Dodgers and comes back to his hometown in Anderson, and he and his wife are surprised by joy with the birth of a child, Jimmy. And what makes Jimmy different? Let me tell you, again, let's put ourselves there for a second. April 1st, 1960, less than a year after Carl had retired. You know, as other ball, all ball players go off into you know sunset of card shows and, and you know uh, golf outings, Carl and Betty, they come back to Anderson. They were ready to move to New York City. Carl had a job at the Van Heusen Shirt Company. They had a for sale sign in their yard. They have Jimmy, and Jimmy, as cute as can be, and the first words they hear from the nurses are mongoloid. Um, Jimmy has Down syndrome. Mongoloid was the official term for it back then. This, you know, this is their fourth child. They had no issues with their 
with their previous three. And this was an era where we can't even recognize it today. It'd be so hard to do. Yes. There is no schooling. There are no services of any kind. You can't, there aren't special doctors for this. There aren't daycare centers. There's no for support this. system. There's no support system whatsoever. Doctors at that point routinely recommended, strongly recommended right away that such children be institutionalized was the, the long word for it. And I can tell you those institutions from doing a lot of research on it, despite despite well-meaning in some cases, they were awful. They were essentially like prisons. You, were, you would essentially take your child there, say goodbye, and drive away. Because the idea was you didn't want to um, you know, interrupt the rest of your family. You didn't want to hamper them. That, you know? that the burden would be too great for the rest of your right. community. I mean, this is you know, post-war. This is all this optimism. There's, there's affluence you know, widespread in the United States. And, and you know, everybody's talking about living the American dream and all that. Well, this wasn't part of that. American dream, um, but what did Carlin do? They, they, they were. It was re- Carl and Betty. They were recommended. It was recommended very strongly to them that they take that same path, institutionalization. Carl was bewildered at first. Betty was not bewildered. Betty said, "He's coming home with us." So they take Jimmy home, sort of against the odds. They're not the only parents who are doing this at the time. There's a very small movement called what we now look at it called the parents' movement across the country, where parents were sort of changing you know how you the treatment and and the view of people born with special needs but what carl did beyond that carl and betty is parents other parents who were doing that they were keeping their kid at home you know almost and maybe a little embarrassed it just you know it'd be easier this way. hidden yeah carl and betty said none of that everywhere they went little jimmy was with them we've got Church. three other kids and there was a lineup oh yeah i mean it was and, the, and they have great home movies of all this and it's true jimmy was just part of the family of course he's part of the family and they treated him like that everywhere they went and that served over time to show a way to light a path for others in their in their neighborhood others around Anderson and the longer on longer this went on and then especially when special olympics picked up carl became such an ambassador nationally um, you know i'm going to jump to a headline here if i may this is something that really surprised me in my research and i think it's one of the most powerful things in the film is that indiana 120 years ago was arguably the worst place in america in the acceptance of and the treatment of special needs we had the nation's first compulsory sterilization law, part of the eugenics movement in 1907, which is as sick as it sounds, mm-hmm. and was part of the Nazis' defense at the Nuremberg trials. Well, you say what well, we did wrong. Well, look what Indiana was doing in 1907. You never want to be a part of the defense of the Nazis. <laughs> the Nazis. At the, wow. Nuremberg yeah, we yeah. have gone from that to today, arguably one of the very best states uh, by several measures. Most schools involved in unified sports, which pit people with special needs and not with special mm-hmm. needs, you know, together on the pitch. We have the second big, second biggest um, ARC chapter, the ARC of the United States. ARC of Indiana is the second biggest chapter. We have the Erskine Green Training Institute over there in Muncie, which is the best live-in job training facility in the nation for people with intellectual disabilities. So, and everybody says that while it's taken a sea change, those who would know, going all the way back with Special Olympics, going all the way back with the ARC, say the number one reason for Indiana's worst to first turnaround was number 17, Carl Erskine. That's a, that's a headline. He gave visibility uh, to something that other people wanted to drive by yes. and made a difference. You know, I, I've heard this uh, told that as Carl and Betty retired from 
the spotlight. I mean, really, they were on the national stage. Uh, they had a home in Anderson, but in and out of New York and all over the country playing ball. And they decided to come back to their hometown, but actually with the intention to relocate to New York City because that had been so much of their life. He came to the team when he was 22 and 12 years on in his mid-30s. It just seemed like that was the natural thing. And yet, Jimmy was born, and they were sitting in church. What happened? I tell you, it's just it's just remarkable. This is the one of the biggest elements of the story. This is why Anderson is so critical. Anderson is a character in the in the life of Carl Erskine. They're sitting in church, which is just perfect. And again, they got the for sale sign in the yard. Um, Jimmy's going to be tricky to raise Jimmy for sure. They've got a job offer on the table in New York City, but they look around. They look around at all their friends, at their family. They look at each other, Carl and Betty, and they look at Jimmy, and they said, we're staying put. And Carl says to this day, it's the best non-move he's ever made <laughs> is not leaving Anderson. This was the best place um, to raise their son. And there's just a beautiful anecdote, if I can, if I can yes. share it. Um, this is, uh, boy, I almost tear up just even thinking about it. Um, picture this, you know, born in, Jimmy born in 1960, all that work with no services. You know, they, they worked so hard to, to sort of move the needle year after year a little further, more services, a little more schooling. But it was slow, man. It was slow and it was halting. Well, in 1972, 1972, Jimmy Erskine got on a school bus, like a real school bus, for the first time. And Carl tells the story. He's told it to probably everybody in Anderson and beyond, but I'm going to say it again. He and Betty, you know, they, they put Jimmy. Jimmy sits down right in the first chair, and um, he looks all excited. And, and Carl and Betty, you know, the bus drives off, and they look at each other, and they're both tearing up. And, you know, boy, and they start walking back down the street to their house. And they, lo and behold, you look on both sides of the street, and the neighbor's have been out there. Their neighbors for 12 years and beyond mm -hmm. sure. have been out there. And what are they doing? They're cheering them on. Way to go. Way to go. You guys did it. Imagine that. They didn't just help Jimmy. They helped the idea of acceptance of people with disabilities. The same way Carl had helped uh, the idea of acceptance of people of different race. Mm -hmm. You know, this is just, it's ingrained in what they do. And and I if I may, I do want to share a quote I wrote got here. Yes, I couldn't have memorized it, but you you know, we're speaking about his faith here. Yes. And how deeply that worked into all these decisions. Again, you know, I don't think he thought about that right when he did it, but his life was infused with this idea. And I so I went back through our interviews before I met we here and I and I pulled some quotes that I thought really kind of spoke to me. And one was Carl said, if you're a person that is thankful for what you are, where you're at, what you've been given, you start every day with thanksgiving. You won't measure others. You'll measure yourself. In fact, that's biblical. Christ taught us that you'll be forgiven as you have forgiven others. That measurement is a tough one, but I try to live by that standard, and Betty does too. And that brings up, I mean, the most important thing in Carl's life is his marriage. Mm -hmm. Coming up on 75 years, three wow, quarters of a century, October 5th. If anybody out there <laughs> wants to send them a congratulations, they'd love it. But here's what Carl said about, about marriage. He said, it's often said when two people marry, they become one. And I say, when you get married and you've got the Lord in your life, two becomes three. So that's kind of been our formula. And I think that, uh, you know, I think that plays out in, in everyday life and... 
without that faith, would he have been able to move these sort of social mountains that he's been able to move? I doubt it. Well, think about how, again, given his platform uh, with Pro Bowl, and, and that set him up to do a lot of things. And how often we see people who have similar opportunities and they become the fodder of a People magazine story or some other kind of, you know, human interest reality TV show that does not leave you inspired. And that's what I began our conversation with you, Ted, about your documentaries inspire. They're true stories. They're not, they're not fudging on the truth. And life isn't always easy. And, and the challenges that Carl faced uh, at many levels were not always easy, but his faith and his values and the nature of his heart that was instilled in him from a young age, which he embraced. Many people start there, but abandon it. He kept holding on to it tightly, has proved true. The, the power of those ideas and that faith. In the most extraordinary way, uh, Anderson, Indiana is a city that uh, when he, when Carl was a boy, was on the threshold of, of Boomtown and went through a period in the 1950s when he was playing ball. I mean, it was a buzz. It was a General Motors town. It was an engine of the economy. Uh, so many things were happening here. And then, like so many parts of the Midwest, it went into some economic decline. It's had its ups and downs. Every town has a story. Carl is that anchored figure who might have lived anywhere, who could have thrown his hands up and said, well, I'm going out to California or I'm going to go to New York or whatever. But he, he just kind of knows who he is and where he came from and who loves him and where he wants to love. All of that is wound up in the sense of himself that is in his faith. And isn't it just a little cooler, for lack of a better word, that he is from, you know, a, a mid-sized town, that he's not from New York or LA? I mean, I, you know, I'll tell you, I've been thinking about this a lot. What really drew me to Carl? And, and I, I think what it is, is uh, the last couple years, maybe three years for, for me personally have, have been very difficult. And I've talked to so many people who say the same thing beyond COVID, just for whatever reason. And, you know, I just, all you hear about, and I think part of it is, is what you, what you see on TV every day, you know, the, the news, you know, these politicians getting up there screaming and, and, and lying, you know, through their teeth. We have all this gun violence. We have all these problems, you know, reality TV. And, and I was just drawn to this Extreme, this guy up in Anderson, Indiana, who has been able to affect such profound change, not always himself, but be a part of that change, be one of those guys behind pushing through grace, through humility, through servant leadership. Um, it was time, he had spent so much of his life lifting up others, celebrating others, writing about others, wrote about Jackie Robinson and what I learned from Jackie Robinson. Struck me that, you know what, I think a lot could be learned from Carl Erskine. <laughs> there's, a, there's a book. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to be learned from Carl Erskine. And, uh, you know, the, the two years I've spent on this project, you know, working with, with Special Olympics, working with the Ark of Indiana, but mostly just working with Carl and Betty and learning about them and their family were the greatest two years of education I've had in my life. And in your mid-50s, you know, that's not too bad. Well, and you've mentioned already, there are learning materials that accompany this documentary. So let's just talk a little bit about how this works. You decided to step out of your newspaper job and 
and devote yourself to producing these documentaries. You have to kind of sell the project. You have to find underwriters. This is uh, not a for-profit business per se in the ordinary sense. People have provided resources to create this documentary for Carl, which is top tier. It's beautifully crafted. And part of that investment is to make it accessible to people so that it's more than just watching a show. You can actually learn from it. So tell me about the EPIC uh, program and how that can translate into school rooms and classrooms and ordinary life. I'm happy to talk about EPIC because I think that will be the true legacy of this project. We started for my Crispus Attucks film, which I guess was two ago, two films ago at this point. We did an education program with that, um, working with IPS and IUPUI and some others just because we thought, boy, there are some things that kids today, not just inner city kids, kids in Carmel. Kids IUPUI for our listeners is the Indiana University, Purdue, Purdue Indianapolis. Correct, right. Yep. Um, and so we, we did that and and I thought it was a really neat part of it, but it ended up being kind of a kind of like a book-like thing, and it, we needed to make it a little more dynamic. So for my next film on Eva Kaur, also incredibly inspirational person, um, we we ramped up and we really made that not just a one-off but a key part of the show, and we're doing that even more so, I think, with Epic, the Erskine Personal Impact Curriculum. This is being produced uh, by Special Olympics Indiana, uh, teamed with me. Um, it really came from Special Olympics Indiana. I approached them early on to see if they might want to give me a modest donation <laughs> for the film, and and it turned out they wanted to do a lot more than that. They they ended up really running with it because Carl's such a huge part of their history. And what this is, and it's not just about how to the treatment of people with intellectual disabilities. It's also about race. Mm -hmm. It's just about acceptance in general. About humanity. About humanity. And and what what, what the what the components are is that the regular film is 90 minutes. We've chopped it down to about 56 minutes into sort of three convenient parts, stuff, you know, where you can, teachers can play in classrooms. We've also put together specific video lesson plans, maybe three-minute clips, which include parts of the movie, you know, with, with these values. And then we produce three books, three age-appropriate books, one for elementary school, one for middle school, and one for high school. And we started this last sort of a soft launch in the last spring and by the end of spring i mean right as we're heading in we we stopped taking orders for a while but we were up to seventy thousand orders for books um all around the state we think that we very much hope and we're working with the indiana association of school principals which loves it so much they're now talking about let's push this nationally i'm saying uh, seattle's my hometown this will play there it's just so extraordinary i mean it, it it does help to have the draw of baseball that interests mm -hmm. people right away but then you you take that and you show what carl's values are and how those values played out even on the baseball field and it's just it, 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 it's simple stuff, but we've done tests with it now, and uh, students love it. Teachers love it. And to me, to me, I mean, the first book for elementary school is just called Wanna Play. It's what Carl said to Johnny Wilson when he was on the playground when Carl was 10 and Johnny was 9. The notion that maybe 10 years from now, a child who isn't even born today might read Wanna Play in an Indiana classroom and look across the room at somebody who doesn't look like him at all, doesn't maybe doesn't think like him, uh, doesn't believe in the, have the same faith he does, but would look at that person and think, you know what, I could be friends with that person. I mean, that's powerful. And that's what we're trying to do here. And I have to commend so much, I just commend Special Olympics Indiana, but also, you know, Carl and Betty, they, 
to be the subject of one of my documentaries is a is a test in the patients, and um, you know, and they're not spring chickens, ninety five and ninety four now, but they've devoted themselves to this project, including the educational element, and uh, we have great hopes that it will change some change some minds and and make uh, you know make the next generation think about things they may not have thought about naturally before. Well, and as we talk about Carl and Betty and their investment. Uh, in allowing themselves to be the subject of this uh, documentary and teaching module. Uh, as you know, uh, I know the Erskins and have known them for quite some time. And they are some of the most modest, self-effacing, uh, least self-promotional people I've ever met. And especially given their long life and trajectory, they could be so much different, but they're they are just the salt of the earth, really as fine of people as you ever meet. So their investment is about the ideas, not their story, but the fact that their lives are a story. Man, so thankful, Ted, for you to seize that story and help bring it to life. And we've talked a lot about Indiana here, but this is a story that plays coast to coast and north to south. And so excited about what can happen as just now we're on the cusp of seeing this documentary, which is more than the story, let's just say, Ted, it's beautifully crafted. It's produced with excellence and something that everyone who touches it they'll be better by it. And I, and I have to just jump into another piece of your portfolio, which is the story of Eva, uh, who is in herself a, a different story than Carl, uh, grew up in quite a different world and has had uh, many, many challenges, and yet also the stuff of phenomenal inspiration. Because this Eva, who the subtitle of the film is, I think, the number that she was branded with. It's A60... A-7063. 7063. Uh, branded by the Nazis as she was taken to a concentration camp. One of the the experimental children where Joseph Mengele, who was this horrific figure, would experiment on their bodies. Mm -hmm. Tell us just a glimpse of what her narrative is, another story that you've seized because of the way it leads us to a better place. Well, I, the, the, the headline about Eva Kaur is she's a survivor who forgave the Nazis. The story went a lot deeper than that. But basically, yes, she, at 10 years old, she and her twin sister Miriam and their family were taken to Auschwitz. The rest of the family was murdered. Um, Eva and Miriam were experimented on. Uh, they were liberated after nine months and then Eva eventually found her way. She went to Israel, and then she fell in love with a guy who, uh, um, another survivor who lived in Terre Haute, Indiana, and it was there on vacation. <laughs> and so they fell in love, and before you knew it, Eva said she went from Tel Aviv to Terre Haute, <laughs> um, and she lived there from 1960 on. Um, and she went through such difficulty. Um, dealing with her past, understandably so. But you have to understand, Eva is just the go-getter of all go-getters. She went through, she, she personally started, personally, the biggest manhunt ever at the time for Joseph Mengele. I mean, she was a, a what shall we say, a catalyst for we're going to find this monster and bring him to justice. Force of nature. She moved nations, United States, Germany, Israel. She moved nations to join in this hunt, and they did. Um, and, and he was discovered. And he was discovered, he was discovered dead, which she was not uh, uh, happy about, and nor did she even believe it was actually him, but that's yes, sort yes, of another story. But she went through, she went through hell. 
1995, 50 years exactly after liberation, she announced her forgiveness of... Because she wasn't in that forgiving zone during all those years. And that's... And and, yes, she announced her forgiveness of the Nazis, which shocked everybody and really ticked off a lot of the, you know, a lot of Jewish people and a lot of, and understandably so, you can get it. But she stuck to that message of forgiveness from then to the rest of her life. She passed away doing what she does best. She was teaching. She was at Auschwitz leading one of her annual tours in 19, in in 2019. And she passed away at the hotel on July 4th. Um, But what was interesting about her story is... She'd always told it, but has only told it in two parts. That was that was my judgment. She told part one when she was, you know, at the camp, the leading up to going to Auschwitz and then all that. And then she told part three, which was her forgiveness, and then what happened after that. She hadn't told part two to anybody. And that's because I learned she it was too painful. It was too painful. She essentially got to a point where her anger had destroyed her. Um, you know, she, the Mengele hunt did not go the way she wanted. All the stuff she went from being kind of a hero in the movement to a complete outcast, bodily arrested at the U.S. Capitol Rotunda for speaking out during the middle of a Holocaust remembrance um, event. And then, you know, worst of all is her sister passed away uh, in 1993. Her twin sister. Her twins, all, all the family she this had. Whole right, so she passed away. Eva was at the point where she was at rock bottom. I think the only way she could go was through forgiveness. And I'll tell you, when we first started airing that film, a lot of people, especially in the Jewish community, came in wanting to hate it. And, you know, <laughs> how dare she? How dare she? But it turns out that Eva of the headline, that's why I started with that, survivor who forgave the Nazis. There's a much more deeper Eva than that. The, the, the backstory, what she went through to get to a place where forgiveness was, was her way out. And I'll tell you, we, we took her story around the state and around the country, played in 96% of the United States, all the biggest markets. But doing the, during the education part of it, when we would tour Indiana schools, and I'll never forget it, And this happened more than once, but this one particular occasion, Southern Indiana, sixth graders, I think, little boy stays after, stays after class, after I give my presentation. You know, I do this at classrooms all over the place. Mm -hmm. I show some of the film. I talk about Eva, and afterward, he—you could tell he was troubled. It actually looked like he was kind of traumatized, and I Mm -hmm. found out later from his Mm -hmm. teacher that he had been. And I said, "Mr. Green," he said, "Eva's forgiveness. Do you think it might work for me?" You know, and what do you say? I, I, I'm, I'm no psychologist. I, I said, you know, I'll be honest with you. I don't know if it will, and I don't know if it won't. But I can tell you it 100% turned her life around. And he looked at that, looked at me for a second, smiled a little, and walked away. Now, I don't know what happened after that, but That's I'd funny. like to think that Eva mm-hmm. gave that young boy some hope. That's what I'm hoping. Maybe that's what my contribution can be in life is to present these, to sort of chronicle for posterity some of these great figures who do just that, who give people hope, an attainable hope, right? You don't need to be rich. You know, you don't need to be able to memorize the Constitution. But you can do certain things. You can act in certain ways that will make the world around you better. Maybe it's trite. Okay, well, you know what? I think it's also true. And I think that um, I have been so blessed beyond measure that these people 
they've trusted me to tell their stories, knowing I wasn't going to pull any punches. You know, with right, Carl, right. we show some <laughs> tough stuff. With Eva, yeah. we showed yeah. some tough yep. stuff. You have to show that to show what they've been able to work through, because all of us face it can't be legit all of us unless faced, the story is fully developed. All of us face tremendous yeah. setbacks, yeah. but it, it, they can be overcome in a beautiful way. And I think that's what Eva proved, and I think that's what Carl and Betty proved. And Eva's kind of byline is, is forgiveness was for her healing. I mean, it's really medicinal almost. It was medicinal. It's, it's self-empowering. Right, it's self-liberating. It's a different kind. Her, you know, her her uh, her uh, definition is definitely different from the norm. And there are times when I think I just don't know if forgiveness is really, really the word she's going for here. But you know what? Take the word part out of it and listen to her deeper message, and that's where her strength lies. I think these people, you know, you you, sh you teach by example. And I think there's no better example of that than Carl and Betty. That's what they've done. These sort of one act, what they did with Johnny Wilson, and then there's and then there's Jackie Robinson. They're not trumpeting themselves. They're just doing these things, you know. And and also Carl had this penchant for getting in and the sort of the ground floor of all these things that grew so big. And one that I think is it's important to talk about here might be the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Mm -hmm. I mean, Carl was one of the very first three approached by that in 1954. You know, nobody had thought about that, sort of promoting your faith the way you'd promote Wheaties or, or, <laughs> yes, or something right. like that. Right. But, but Carl thought about it. He got involved. He's one of the very first members. He gave the keynote speech that brought in the key dollars that, that, mm -hmm. that made it possible. But beyond that, the FCA historian uh, down in North Carolina says that among the original 17, no one stayed involved the longest or was more deeply involved than Carl. Carl doesn't just show up right. to get his name in the picture, yeah. you know, in caption in the picture. He's and, not just a chapter, he plays the no, whole book. He plays the whole book. Well, look at FCA now, it's in 107 yeah. countries. Carl was in the ground floor of Special Olympics. Carl was in the ground floor of the Fellowship of, uh, or no, the, uh, the Ark of the United States. All of these have grown tremendously, and all of these organizations tout him as not the biggest name out there, but the most important name. The foundational the, name. Right. And, and, you know, again, this is, this is a guy from Anderson. You know, it's not, it's not a, a billionaire from New York City. It's not a guy who stands on a pulpit and, uh, you know, just bloviates all the time. Nothing like that. He lights a path, but he pushes. Let's not forget, this guy's one of the, you know, think of all he did. He's so yeah. busy, and yet he always always pushing forward. And that is uh, commendable to say the least. Well, uh, Carl leaves every room better when he walks into it. He does. And that's been a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And as you're, as you're kind of capturing these stories, uh, it's no small task, Ted, and you're doing it with passion and interest and, and, and your own value system is being disclosed, I think, in the way in which you tell the story and the stories you choose. What's next? I mean, who's next? Do you have a, a, a catalog, a queue of people that come to mind, or you're just kind of stumbling into them at random? What would you say? Well, I, I somewhat stumble into them at random, but I do a lot of research. I mean, if I'm going to spend two years on something, or, or even more in the case of Eva, I... Uh, I need to make sure it inspires me first. Otherwise, I'll get lost in it. I mean, people say, how do you, as a journalist, how do you keep your emotions out of these things? <laughs> I don't at all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're, they're all emotion for me. 
um, I also feel a deep obligation to the subject. If they're going to open up their life story to me, I mean, who would really want to do that? I mean, all of it. Mm-hmm. If they're going to do that. I have an obligation to give it, give it everything I have. Um, I've been so again fortunate to be able to do what I've been able to do, and then especially maybe these, especially these last three with Crispus Attucks and mm-hmm. and Eva. But before that, with Bobby Leonard, you know, oh my gosh, I love the Leonard family, and and. I, you know, I'm sort of, maybe I'm, I don't want to duck the question, but I'm trying to come up with an answer. What's next? Um, I well, will, I will say, you know, there are a couple people here uh, in Madison County that uh, intrigue me a great deal. There's some people on the radar. There are definitely some people on the radar and, you know, uh, these people could probably get better filmmakers than I to tell their story. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I don't know if they, I don't want to say this too loudly, but I, I would give it, I would give it the heart that I think it deserves. Nobody could give more of themselves to it. I, I, I'll buy that. That's a, legi- a very authentic thing to say. And, and as I think about the stories you're telling and I think about the world in which you and I live and walk, I mean, there does seem to be so much vitriol. There's so much tension. Uh, it seems like you turn on cable television sometimes and there's somebody always trying to make me mad every day about something. What, what are the takeaways from the stories uh, that we've talked about here, Carl and Betty, Eva? Uh, what lessons do they bring, do you think, to the public square? Do they, or to, to somebody listening today who's maybe wound up, the blood pressure's high because of one thing or another, what would you say, your stories say to them? I'd like to think they get the power of grace, the power of perseverance, the, the subtle um, power of just of treating people kindly. Mm. Um, you know, again, it, it, it sounds like simple stuff, but that is the message that simple stuff can be the most powerful stuff at all. You know, and, and, and it starts, because it infuses every decision everybody makes, right? I mean, this stuff you talk about, this vitriol, it, it infects our society. You think kids don't pick up on that, whether it's directly from how their parents feel at the end of the day? No, even it's even more direct than that. Kids pick up on this. This is this. How do we treat people? Well, look, look on TV. This person's calling that person a name. This person, you know, I, I think that when you show a success story of, of someone who has done it the right way, it it, it says so much. I, I just got a text message the other day from Charlie Steiner. Charlie Steiner is the narrator of my film. He's a longtime ESPN guy who's been the Dodgers broadcaster now for the last 15 years. And he grew up going to games at Ebbets Field. So he, okay, he, so he, he was he was vested. He's vested. And and uh, but he's a tough guy, you know. Yeah, he's seen yeah. it all in the sports world. But he wrote he, he he just wrote me a text after I sent him the film, and he said, you know, and he was he loved it, and he said maybe just maybe, niceness and decency can win in the end. Mm-hmm. That's the takeaway I'm looking for here. My wife is teaching fifth grade just now, and um, she told me a story just yesterday about a. Uh, a dust up in her classroom, in the hallway outside of her classroom, where her kids were all lined up for going to the lunchroom or something. And there is, she is describing in this new school year, as in last school year, the difference between a classroom today and maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and, and the tension and, that exists in these fifth graders. And so there was this uh, altercation where she had to intervene and other teachers had to come. And so one child, in, in, I mean, it's a physical altercation. And of course, in school, everyone knows that somebody's going to throw a punch every now and then. But this was, this was 
again, the intensity of it and the, and the contempt and the vitriol that was there was so alarming to her. And one of the children, a teacher took one child down the hall and she was left with this other child. And she described to me how the student had their fist clenched so deeply. And she said, it just struck me. The key to de-escalating this is to get this young boy to relax his fist, which represented all the anger inside. And how she had, she just talked and talked to him and said, just, just relax your fist. Just, just let it go. It, you have to do that. Do, you know what? There's going to be a consequence for what happened today, but you just have to let this go. And after some time, he finally relaxed. And the, and the visual image, as she was describing it to me, of a world that's angry contrasted to a world of grace to get from the clenched fist to the grace of someone like Carl Erskine. Yes, that's what we need more of. You know, there's a, it got me thinking, there's a, a great line from a Pulitzer Prize winning novel from several years ago, um, a guy named Richard Powers. The book is called The Overstory. It's actually about trees. But the line in the movie is, or line in the book is, the best argument in the world won't change a person's mind. The only thing that can do that is a good story. Well, I believe Carl Erskine's story is that story. And that's why I've thrown so much passion into it. And I, that's why I have, you know, working with my partners at the Indiana Historical Society, great partners, the uh, Special Olympics Indiana, the Principals Association, people are coming together. The city of Anderson uh, in, in incredible ways. Um, the Madison County Community Foundation, these people are coming together to tell this story and to spread this story. That's the power of Carl and Betty. Maybe they can, that kind of learning mm -hmm. can prevent that fist from balling up so hard in the first place. Is that too much to ask? Maybe, but if it can, if it can move the needle just a little bit, think of the ripple effects that well, can have. And as you reflected about the student uh, asking about Eva's story, can forgiveness help me? Well, worth a try. It's worth a try. <laughs> there we are. You know? Yeah. And all right, so this wonderful new project that you have just completed is is set to fly. <laughs> and we just want everyone to know there is a website. There's a website, carlerskinefilm.com. Uh, at the very top of that website, there's a link to screenings. And we have screenings coming up all around the state. And our great hope then, as following the path of Eva, is that starting next spring, um, the best we've got will be uh, aired nationally. That's the name of the documentary. Is the best we've the got. The best we've got. Which the is Carl Erskine story. A quote from Mitch Daniels, I think. Yeah, I stole it straight from Mitch when giving <laughs> Daniel, Carl the sachem. Governor of Indiana, once the uh, director of uh, Office of Management and Budget for George W. Bush, uh, President of Purdue, no small thing himself, Mitch Daniels. He no. calls Carl Erskine the best we've got. Yeah, and so when I interviewed Mitch, I said, "I hope you saw that I." Uh, I stole your title, or I stole, I stole my title from you. And he said, he said, yeah, I like that. No charge. <laughs> no charge. But for those of you who may be tuning into our podcast after some of these dates have come and gone, because this will live online for a while, you can go to the carlerskinfilm.org. carlerskinfilm.com. Dot com, sorry. No carlerskinfilm.com. And you can find what is the latest, what's the updated, how you can access this great work of art, life, and inspiration. Ted Green, so proud to have you at the All That To Say table. I mean, all that to say, keep making your movies. It's what the world needs now. Jim, I'll do it as long as I can, man. I love it. It's a deal. God bless. Thank you very much. 
For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.